This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. It's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. If you sense a little bit of, uh, not exhaustion, but I sense a little bit of sort of mellowness or, or sobriety in this uh, interview is that it's been, these last four years have really been something on us. And it's very personal because when you're attacked personally by people in the QAnon space or family or friends, and then you have stuff like this happen where you have people saying they want to gang rape your family or things like that, it gets to you after a bit, you know? I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Denver Riggleman, a former representative for Virginia's 5th Congressional District and an ex-Republican. His new book, The Breach, details what he learned as the technical advisor to the January 6th committee, as well as his experiences as a Republican during the Trump administration. Denver, thanks for joining me on Burn the Boats. Hey, thank you for having me, buddy. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time we met in person, it was your first morning on the job with the committee. Uh, we had an interview scheduled about domestic violent extremism uh, with General McChrystal, you and a few others. I'm wondering if you had any sense on that first day on the job that your efforts would uncover as much as they did. You know, I thought it might. You know, I'd been doing this open source look at QAnon for some time. You know, I was attached to the Network Contagion Research Institute. Ken, I remember us talking about, you know, me looking at Twitter and, you know, all the data that we had on these individuals. You know, we had all, I think I have 57,000 Trump tweets. You know what I mean, Ken? So, uh, you know, we had a lot of data. So, um, you know, I thought we might see, you know, some connections that were surprising. But I think for me, it was just how vast, you know, the link connections were, you know, whether you're looking at, telephony or you're looking at text messages, because how could we have ever foreseen, you know, the Meadows text messages can? I mean, it's very difficult, you know, to see into the future like that. So really, once the, te- the Meadows text messages landed, things got very interesting. And I think uh, I did not foresee that, buddy. I can tell you that. Why do you think Mark Meadows shared those texts? I know you're not a lawyer, but you've got a long history in Air Force intel and in data collection synthesis analysis. How does somebody as supposedly politically savvy as as Mark Meadows do what he did? Well, you know, uh, he fought us so hard later on with what's called detail records, Ken, and fought us with other types of documentation. The fact is, it's not only the text, but he also delivered the Phil Waldron briefing, right? The crazy you know, foreign interference briefing that went to other congressional representatives and senators and and other people that were trying to to overturn the election. So, you know, the fact that he that he actually dumped those texts. Now, there's some that he said were privileged. We haven't seen those yet. And I don't know if we actually even have all the text messages because we don't have his call detail records. I can't actually compare, you know, apples to apples there. But twenty three hundred and nineteen is absolutely amazing. 
And the fact is, I'm wondering, and Ken, I'm not an attorney, but I'm wondering if maybe those working on this case didn't know what they had, because when we received the text messages, a lot of them weren't identified uh, name to number. So it could be that when you dump them off your phone, which I, I know how to do, right? You can dump them off your phone or you go up into the iCloud or do a copy paste from an Excel spreadsheet. It could be that it just got lost in translation. You had people who weren't understanding what they were giving. But the fact that that Meadows had kept all those texts, you know, data is perishable. Whatever people say, it's very, you can delete things that are, can never be gotten. The fact is he kept them on. That maybe is one of the biggest mysteries. You know, I touched on it in the book is that I just, if he's going to fight all the other, you know, sort of data downloads, the fact that he actually gave content with context and then we got the timeline after that, where you could actually hook the timeline to the content and the context with sitting congressmen, sitting senators, former congressmen, former senators, cabinet members, you know, activists. It's just stunning to me um, that that was given up so easy. And then later on, he fights things that uh, he'd already given up the ghost by the time that he had started fighting those things. So I do think he was the most important sort of wicket to get through initially. And I think he set the stage for what the committee was able to do. You have said that you're not sure you got. Uh, everything relevant and incriminating from Mark Meadows, which suggests that given how damning the stuff he provided was, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to conceive of how bad the stuff he held back might have been. Yeah, you know, with, with in a, and I mentioned this book, authorities in Congress are a little different than law enforcement, right? They're not as extensive. You know, we can subpoena anybody, but that subpoena is not a criminal subpoena. We can't actually you know, uh, put warrants out there you know, for data. So what's interesting is I believe the DOJ might have the Meadows right call records, but we didn't get them. He fought them, but we don't get geolocation or tower data and stuff like that. So everything that we have is really to, from, and what type of devices or what type of communication medium they use. So with Mark, you know, if with Meadows, if I could, if I had his call detail records, I could actually cross-reference and see if he actually sent us all the text messages. Now he didn't, right? We could actually see what the real number is, but he certainly held back a lot that he said were privileged. And my gosh, can I you know, if I could get a hold of those and look at that content mixed with the content we already have, you know, it could be that, you know, that there's more Jenny Thomas texts or it could be there's more texts from people that belong to certain groups like the Council for National Policy or the Claremont Institute or even more text messages from people on the ground like Phil Waldron or some of those individuals that were also in the text messages. I mean, Mark Meadows had really was the hub and spoke for pretty much the whole plan. Even the crazy QAnon stuff on there was just interleaved, you know, almost seamlessly, you know, <laughs> the crazy was in there. You've talked about this this hub and spoke representation, and you did a lot of work to help visualize the network effect of all of these communications. Can you talk about the monster, that presentation that you delivered to the committee and how all three branches of government were wrapped up in the conspiracy to, to overthrow the government and not respect the results of the 2020 election? You know, the hardest thing for me, you know, is is that last, you know, tactical mile on the uh, judicial side. Right. Ken? Um, you know, when you see the Jenny Thomas stuff like that. But we know the legislative and executive branch because they self-identified. They self-identified in the text and said what they were doing. That's really no mystery. But they self-identified even in their own tweets, their own videos and their own legislation, you know, supporting the legal challenges, you know, briefings that came out of, you know, like the Republican study group. I mean, my gosh, Ken, it's vast. Right. So there was definitely three strategies, right? You had an executive, a legislative, and a legal strategy. And I think when you look at the monster, when you look at how many people were connected, that legal strategy, at least, was certainly connected to Meadows. 
because there were people who were working with Jenna Ellis and working with Rudy Giuliani. And Rudy Giuliani was directly working, you know, specifically with the chief of staff. So we definitely had that legal strategy. The That last tactical mile is really, if you have a Jenny Thomas figure on there sending the craziest, you know, text you can imagine, and also uh, emailing states, you know, like Arizona or Wisconsin or whatnot, it really starts to, you know, it's it's hard to get around the common sense peg, you know, the common sense meter that maybe, you know, husbands or spouses aren't aware of that kind of activity. And, you know, so, yeah, we've got two locked down, you know, with the executive and legislative. But I, I do think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on was there a direct connection to the Supreme Court? Obviously, you know where I'm at, Ken, because common sense is usually a, a pretty big thing when you combine that with analytics. But, you know, just the monster itself and how many groups were connected through either directly or through one or two levels of separation uh, is absolutely astounding. And I think it's something that, again, um, you said at the beginning, Ken, you know, not just the Meadows text, but seeing that amount of data and how we connected that data and how we technically, the acumen of the team was incredible. Seeing it and seeing how many people were connected, it looked just like, to me, the centers of gravity I saw on network charts when I was, you know, tracking, you know, bad actors, you know, in the Middle East or in other areas around the world. I mean, just amazing to see it look just like that. For those who haven't read the book yet, and especially for our podcast listeners, can you describe what we're talking about when you refer to the monster? The monster is all the uh, call detail records with text messages, whether they're SMS, you know, whether they're, uh, I'll even make this simpler, whether they're pictures, whether they're regular text on text messages, if they're phone calls or VoIP calls. So the monster actually shows who um, or what group or who individually within each group had the most connections with other groups. So the monster is this massive link map. So it looks like little blooms. You know, you have one person with all the lines coming out from it. So it looks like, you know, I don't want to say look like it's a massive Chia pet, but you certainly have certain groups or individuals that are really centers of gravity. They're connecting hubs. They're the coordinators. And so you can see the coordinators and all the links coming out of those coordinated areas, right? So you have these massive fur balls, uh, connected by links to another furball or a person who's very involved. So if you're looking at an Enrique Tario or you're looking at some of these members on right-wing extremist groups or you're looking at rally planners, you can see which ones were the most active with the other groups. And that really gives you insight um, into who you need to call, what questions you can ask, or why would somebody be connected that way? You know, just lately, you know, NBC followed up on a part of the book where I said, you know, there were indications that Kelly Sorrell, an Oath Keeper, tried to text the White House. Well, we find out that's Andrew Giuliani. So even though we didn't know um, who she was trying to text specifically, we know that the fact of happened and we can ask the appropriate questions. And that's why something like the monster, when you're saying who is connected to who is so valuable in an investigation. I love your Chia Pet reference. It's probably generational, though. Uh, we may need to include a, a picture and an explanation. Um, how did your background in Air Force Intel prepare you for this? Uh, you know, it was a combination, Air Force Intel going into the intelligence community. And then, you know, I'm being fortunate enough to know enough about tactical platforms, jets, and how they collect data or use data, you know, for targeting. And then going into places like OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense or NSA, and learning how you get data, right? And how that data is applied with other types of data. And you blend that all in and you have a holistic look of how people are actually acting or groups or platforms, you know, surface air missile systems or airplanes or whatnot. So, you know, I did that for 20 years, man. And um, I deployed 
I did this in 9-11. I did it in Operation Allied Force in 99. I was in NSA from 2002 off and on for 16 years. Um, and I even helped build counter IED cells, right, to go after groups like Shia militia groups and things like that and have to break them down. So my goodness, Ken, you know, um, you know, I think Congressman and Distiller is just my cover. You know, um, I was only in politics a few years, um, been distilling eight. But, you know, since 92, I've been in the military. Uh, and since 98, you know, I was I was deep into intelligence work. So I've been very fortunate. Um, but yeah, and, 90, and by the way, when I was enlisted, I, you know, I was trained in uh, radars and communications, avionics, and and also I, I, I put some of the first GPS on airplanes back in 94. So I've been very fortunate. I think I just got lucky um, that not only was I technically trained and I can apply that technology and sort of the, that operational acumen to intelligence. And then to be able to do it now, to come into Congress, um, you know, get my butt kicked anyway, Ken, as you know, because I got a little bit too independent. But I think being able to see that, to have the political, the intelligence, the operational, the targeting, uh, and the personal experience in my life, to be able to blend all of that has just been a blessing. You know, really, uh, I, I even, it's just been freaking lucky, you know, that I was able to get all that in. Well, the other reason besides that technical acumen that you were added as the technical advisor to the committee was your <laughs> uh, brief career <laughs> as a as a member of the Tea Party Caucus with the R behind your name. That didn't last very long because you did About something principled and you got you got clobbered for it. Give us the summary of that, and then I'd love to know what the turning points were for you because you are now an ex Republican. So I had a couple of staffers, you know, who are, are individuals who helped me in my election and uh, two, uh, you know, amazing guys. Right. And they just uh, happened to be in love and wanted to get married. Right. So I think I was the first sitting Republican, uh, you know, if I if I think, which is a bit historic, I think, to officiate a same sex wedding. And, uh, you know, it was about nine months in, I guess, August of 2019. And, you know, Ken, you know, for being, you know, an, an intelligence guy. Um, I might have been a little naive about what the blowback would look like, you know, if you officiate a, a gay wedding. And, uh, you know, not only after nine months, you know, did I get censured for it, but, um, you know, by multiple committees, I might have been the first Republican really attacked by sort of QAnon adherence or that type of conspiracy theory. So, uh, you know, turning points start to happen when you're in a committee meeting and somebody says you're a groomer or you're trying to change the sexual orientation of children uh, or on the tool of the Antichrist. I had a guy scream at me at a public meeting that I was the general of the sodomite armies. Um, so well, that's a promotion, right? Well, you know, I, I tell people this and it's a, just such a dumb joke, but I guess somebody called my wife the spawn of Satan because they accused us of, of laundering money through our distilleries for George Soros. Um, so, um, you know, I, I said, if I'm the tool of the Antichrist and she's a spawn of Satan, we're the we're, we're the world's power couple. Right. We uh, we win. Right. So uh, we can pretty much control the the events on Earth. Um, but um, listen, I was very alone. And I think that's really what it came down to is after that. You know, I also I did something even, you know, I think dumber in the eyes of the uh, fifth district. I joined the climate change caucus. My God. Right. And then I was one of the eight that voted to keep pre-existing conditions. And, and you know, with with a district bigger than New Jersey and uh, with the most federally funded community health centers, most of the Republicans in the southern part of my district really relied on the ACA. 
and, you know, in pre-existing conditions. So I thought I was like this policy guy that was down the middle, even though I was in the, you know, the Freedom Caucus, I sort of, I pulled myself out about three or four months after that. I just went to a few meetings, um, went on some trips where I just really didn't feel like I belonged. And then I figured out pretty quickly that sort of my political leanings might've been very fiscally conservative, but I guess I was too socially liberal. And I think those things really came into conflict. And then once people pick fights with me, instead of like, you know, mea culpa and apologizing, I treated them as bullies and I kicked back pretty hard. And I think, Ken, really the, the same sex wedding was the beginning of opening my eyes to sort of the bigger world of what was going on in the conspiracy world. And then that's when I really got involved and, you know, became the first Republican to go against QAnon and the first, you know, the Republican to do the QAnon resolution. And then uh, nobody really gave a hell. Right. I was completely alone until January 6th. You know, I I tried to tell people violence was coming, but, you know, there's a lot of people doing that. People just didn't listen. But Ken, you know, it just got to the point that I just couldn't stand living in a facts challenged political party anymore. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Why aren't there more of you? You talk in the book about encounters with so many former colleagues uh, who in private say one thing, but publicly they adopt this reactionary persona. I am thinking about your experience with officiating that gay wedding and comparing it to, I believe, a Republican uh, Pennsylvania member of Congress who voted against marriage protections for gay couples three days before he attended his gay son's wedding. Why are there not, you probably know who I'm talking about. Why are there not? Exactly. Republicans? <laughs> All right. You run with it. Yeah. I, uh, it, it wasn't really that shocking. You know, um, I know that individual and, uh, you know, the thing to me is he always was a very uh, almost moderate, you know, very soft spoken. Very, and and the fact that that he voted against it and then attended one is I think what you're saying um, with how the base is sort of driving how you have to vote. And if you want to win, you know, winning and integrity most times, I think, in this environment are mutually exclusive now. Um, and that is something that bothered me. So as somebody who wasn't in politics before Congress, right, I, I had a 10 week run for governor. When I was 47. I'm 52. Ken. I mean, I did all this intel and I actually had a real life and real jobs before politics. And then I come into this morass of shite. Right. Where it is all about the polling and the fundraising and winning is everything. Winners make history. Right. And 
So that was really, I think, the mindset of a lot of these people. This is all they have. This is the penultimate. They've already got the brass ring. They're in Congress, for God's sakes, right? For me, you know, Congress is just another thing, right? I, I wanted to serve, but it wasn't the ultimate goal or objective for me. And you can see that with the people that are sort of walking in there like, oh, I thought this was actually a policy-driven debate on some kind of intellectual plane with a shared basis in reality. And you find out that you're actually... Uh, gosh, in some kind of fantasy-based community um, where reality is completely suspended if you think you can win. And people that I really like and, and I had respected when I saw that they went the way of sort of just making the mob happy, it terrified me, right? Because I don't have that DNA. I don't have that gene. And I could be a center-right. I could be conservative, what the frick ever. But I do think we have to have a reality-based conversation. And we, there is things that are facts and truth and if people want to live in this fantasy world and there's more of them than you, their perception of their fantasy will actually overwhelm reality and facts. And I think that's the thing. That's why I wrote the book is I just wanted to push back against this ridiculousness, uh, this sort of apocalyptic good against evil messianic conspiracy where, you know, you're arguing with people who think they have a direct link to the supernatural. And that is a really dangerous place to be in the United States of America. Let's get back to that, the the data, the facts. You wrote about seeing messages from colleagues that you once respected, you worked alongside, uh, you considered them friends, and you're, you're seeing them in writing, espousing the craziest ideas, buying into the craziest conspiracy theories. I think a lot of folks assume that in the halls of Congress, that is all performative. But when you talk about perceptions of that fantasy, it's not just the hardcore QAnon conspiracy theorists. I mean, there are members of Congress. There are senior people in the executive branch who are, well, and the wife of a Supreme Court justice who are every bit as uh, who, who are just as on this train as the radicals in their party. Ken, I mean, that I think is why I had to sit back a couple times when I first went through the text messages, especially when you see people, you know, right. And, you know, saying things, you know, in text messages or links, right. Ken, I think what, you know, I broke out seven pages of single space links that were attached to those, those uh, text messages from Twitter or YouTube videos. And, you know, I think a lot of those, um, a lot of those videos were foreign based or they, they were sort of, uh, talking about foreign interference in a way that was coming from other sources outside of our domestic space, right. Where it's a, a, a Ukrainian and Romanian joint video about digital mules coming across the border and paying people for their IDs. Are you kidding? Jesus, you know, you're, you get to, you know, you're reading this and you're like, Oh, that's a sitting member of Congress that just said that. Uh, and then when you see how many there are, there are dozens of sitting members and you see sitting senators and you see cabinet members and you see the wife of Supreme Court justice and you see people that have run for office, former members, you know, um, Freedom Caucus uh, founders. All of those people are in those 2,319 text messages. Um, and then you see some of the crazy stuff. You see the blooming of false flag theories like Antifa from Jason Miller or Marjorie Taylor Greene. You see the blooming of all this ridiculousness as they're trying to message their way out on January 6th. 
And if people just read what was publicly released on the text messages, I don't know how you vote for individuals or a president that surrounded himself or believed that kind of, of stuff or just weaponized it. They don't even have to believe it. Just the fact that you weaponized it and you were able to radicalize that many people that seized the Capitol that day. I just don't know where people's heads are if they think that's where they want America to go. But but I'm losing. Right. Uh, I think. I think America is losing that battle on the facts-based front. I think you're going to see that in the midterms coming up, Ken. And I think 2023 and 2024, I think you're going to see a, a GOP conference that 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 really concentrates on retaliation and not legislation. And I think all that has to do from what's happened, you know, over the last couple of years since November 3rd and then on to January 6th. Can you talk about the religious and spiritual element? of this conspiracy-minded thinking. And I'm drawn to, I'm looking for it in the book, it's not jumping out at me, but there's this one particular text from Mark Meadows where he talks about the ultimate victory of the King of Kings and drawing a link between, it appears, Jesus and Donald Trump. I mean, it is zealous stuff. Well, and that's uh, that's in his text back and forth with Jenny Thomas, if you remember, Ken. Right. And yeah. so, you know, and that's why. Right. And, you know, Jenny Thomas had started with, you know, QFS blockchain watermark ballots and putting the Biden family in Gitmo um, with the National Guard secret operation. Right. Uh, all the way down to the fact that, you know, you have this spiritual warfare component throughout the text messages, but really throughout, you know, the whole QAnon chapter of this, which I think that's what I wanted to really get across to people is that data proves you know, that right wing extremists, QAnon, sort of this Christian good against evil thing. And by the way, you know how I was raised. I put that in the book, right? Is that, you know, you have this thing where, where, gosh, it's hard to even interleave this correctly. But, you know, a lot of people believe I think Jesus can bully his way, you know, to make sure that their belief systems, you know, have primacy over everybody else. And so you have this, uh, even in the text messages, the first thing you notice is that it's all about God, spiritual warfare, all about sort of this Christian-based way of looking at the Constitution. And the fact is, is that I think that if you're that, you know, that religious where you do believe you have a direct link to the supernatural, things like QAnon, whether it's a democratic cabal of Satanists harvesting babies for adrenochrome, right, or this globalist takeover of the world, or Stop the Steal, which is just QAnon-based buffoonery that really bloomed from Roger Stone in 2016, all that stuff is this good against evil messianic sort of thing that we're doing that we're at the apocalypse now. And if you're not us, you are evil. And I think Mike Flynn said on an interview yesterday that if you're not a Christian nationalist, you're an atheist globalist. That is it, right? If, if Ken, if you're not telling me right now you're a Christian nationalist, you're obviously an atheist globalist. It's an either or, right? And that's how you radicalize people, right? You dehumanize the other individuals. You put a lot of money behind it. And then the grifters and the charismatic leaders actually control the base. And right now, I think it's flipped. I think the base is controlling the leaders right now because they have completely bought in. I think, you know, 60, more than 60 percent of the Republicans still want Trump to run, Ken, and that should be a concern to people. I found the text from Mark Meadows to Jenny Thomas. Uh, he wrote, <laughs> this is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of king triumphs. And, you know, I got to believe that his heart is split there between thinking the King of Kings is <laughs> is is the Messiah and is Donald Trump himself. I mean, it's nutty stuff. It really is. And I think um, 
I think when you look at this, Ken, I've been around the world, you know, um, I've seen awful things. I've seen great things. And what I want to tell people, right, is that, you know, whether you think it's good or bad, um, whether you think you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter if that group is larger, has more resources and they're more committed. Um, I, I always use the analogy of a bar fight, right? I was a bouncer and, you know, and I thought I was a pretty good one until there was me against three guys, right? That might have all been bigger than me. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm the right guy here. These people are yelling and they're, they're abusing individuals and they're throwing stuff and they're kicking over tables, but I could lose this, right? Um, it's about numbers. It's about organization, but it's really about money. And when you talk about Meadows text message to Jenny there, when he's responding to just her sort of uh, her rants, where, where you can see that this Q ideology had saturated the highest levels of the GOP. Um, I hate to tell people this, but if you go into a committee meeting and there's 70 people there and all 70 of them think you're evil, uh, that could be a dangerous environment or an environment where you can't, where facts don't really matter. And so that's what I'm just trying to tell folks is that what do you want, right? If, if we're to the point that you, you know, a fantasy-based community is what you'd rather belong to, um, how do we actually, as if you want to be a facts-based individual, how do you, how do you break through that? And I thought I could, Ken, with just reason and empathy. Um, but right now I'm just seeing, you know, that January 6th was just sort of a, a practice run or a warm up or a way to learn lessons. And I don't think it's any better than it was before January 6th. I would humbly submit that this uh, this sort of good against evil ideology of, you know, you're evil, Ken, or I'm evil because I'm not voting Republican. I think it's actually escalated um, in the last, I would say, even in the last few months. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm trying to contextualize the moment we're in, learning from history. And a lot of people have pointed out that we have experienced broad-based conspiracy-minded movements in this country before. We've experienced terroristic movements. We've experienced insurrectionist threats. But one of the things that's different is the amplification that that social media provides and the speed at which that operates. You refer to a digital outrage cycle. I don't know if you coined that phrase, but but I'm stealing it because it describes exactly how this works. And I'm going to read that quote back to you and would love your, your thoughts. Sure. This digital outrage cycle represents an opportunity for all kinds of hustlers who fueled the fire while generating cash through clicks and selling all manner of merchandise from t-shirts to questionable vitamin supplements. I mean, there is an a clear economic component to this. Oh. When you look at how this digital outrage cycle works, it's cynical to its core. To its core, hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, you just saw the Alex Jones thing happening and how much, you know, Trump's pack raised from Stop the Steal specifically and also RNC. Um, hyperbole outrage and sort of this radicalizing element really sells. But the thing is, buddy, is, is I believe what I said there, right, is that there's digital profits that that make digital profits, right? You have the profits with a PH that are making profits with an F. And uh, so when you have profits making profits, right, and you're able to spread that digitally and you can self-select your platform. Uh, you know, the power of social media is the ability to go unicast. And I'm going to explain this, right? You know, when you're sitting as a kid, I remember, and Ken, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but 
I actually had to manually turn channels at one time and you had ABC, NBC, and CBS. And I was in Manassas. So you had channel 20 with Captain Kangaroo, right? So, you know, you had what, four channels pretty much. And now you can pick from a variety of radicalizing agents and YouTube channels, right? That some of these YouTube channels have much more viewers than a CNN show. So my God, right? And I don't think people still understand how powerful the far right ecosystem is when it comes to when it comes to digital. It's just unbelievable. They perfected it. They're doing a great job with it. And then you combine that with mailers, you know, that are so outrageous and hyperbolic. You have massive mailing lists. You got money flying in. It's so freaking awesome um, when you think about the hundreds of millions of dollars that are flowing through these uh, these fantasy lands and they're making money off of it. I mean, so much money. And so uh, it's funny that I've been trying to tell people they're being defrauded, but they don't want to listen because, you know, I've I've turned right. I've uh, you know, I'm now endorsing Abigail Spamberger. I'm, oh, my God, I endorsed a Democrat over Republican. Right. I've, I've become almost this weird um, evil turncoat. I've been called a traitor. Death threats happened five minutes after my 60 minutes hit. So, um, but you know, I'm getting used to it. You know, there's a lot of people who like to throw around death threats. And I think digital and social media, as you said, is the largest metastasizing agent we have right now. Well, they haven't just gone after you. They've gone after your, your family, right? Oh, they certainly have. And, uh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep our dog away from the door here. Um, but yeah, they have they <laughs> they have gone after our family. Um, and I think you know sometimes there's some. Uh, that's the biggest problem that I have is if somebody's coming after me. Yeah, I can sort of take that right. I've been you know I got that uh, you know, a bit. You know, there's still times I'm a little nervous, but I got it right. Um, no biggie. But um, when your family gets involved, or they say that uh, you know you get emails saying that they want to they want your family to be gang raped. Or uh, they start messing with your vehicle by taking lug nuts off and then replacing the caps. And, you know, you get to the point, you know, you're like, is it worth it, Ken? And, you know, I'm if you if you sense a little bit of uh, not exhaustion, but I sense a little bit of sort of mellowness or, or sobriety in this. Uh, not, no pun intended that I'm a distiller, but some sobriety in this in this uh, interview is that it's been these last four years have really been something on us. And uh, it's been a bit brutal and it's very personal because when you're attacked personally by people in the QAnon space or family or friends, and then you have stuff like this happen where you have people saying they want to gang rape your family or things like that, it gets to you after a bit, you know? Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. And I sympathize as well because it is certainly worth it on a personal level knowing that you've done what you could. But when you look at the the impact, do you ever ask yourself, are Americans going to care? I mean, there was this recent poll, there are two back-to-back, one that showed that Americans for the first time are, are ranking threats to democracy high on their list of concerns. But just in the last week, I think uh, Sienna did a poll showing that they're not willing to, to vote yet based on that, nope. that fear. How do you process that given how much you have personally risked to bring to light these threats? You know, it's easy to say Americans have a short memory, but I think, um, I think if you look at the top five topics in R plus districts, if you look at PVI, right. Um, I would say January 6th doesn't even rate in the top five, sometimes not the top 10. Nobody cares. You know, you get outside the, the DC bubble or the New York bubble or the media bubbles out West. Um, you're out here with me where you're working a real job with real people. Um, and you're looking at it that way, 
Um, they just, it's been two years, man. January 6th, to a lot of these people are way in the rear view. Um, one of my biggest critiques of anything, it's not just, you know, the committee, and I, and I didn't even say that, is speed, right? We're in the information warfare space now. That's the new forever war. And if we don't combine speed with technology and acumen or anal analytic acumen, we're in big trouble. The, the traditional sort of how we look at problems or, or go through congressional committees might have worked 20, 30 years ago, but it doesn't work now because speed is of the essence. Because they're when you're looking at individuals that are using digital media or social media, they're already down the road. They've, they've already painted the picture. It's already There's a great book on um, conspiracy theories that talks about folklore. This is already folklore. You know, The fact that the election was stolen is still going to be believed by a majority of those voting and nominating uh, nominating contests around the country in Republican areas. So I, I just sort of shake my head if we're like, oh, you know, an indictment of Trump's going to change something or we got them. Yeah, you know, it's down the road. And I think, you know, Americans are like, well, you know, the only thing I hear on my channel is that inflation and the globalists are trying to mess with the food supply, which is the new conspiracy theory, Ken. Um, so you have all these other things happening. And I think, buddy, um, they moved on. Your number one thing should be you don't want these people ever in a position of power, right? Ever, because they're using you. They don't care about America. They're all about themselves. And on a lot, you have a lot of credulous idiots or people that want to take advantage of you. But I think right now, I had a person say this, Ken, and I just want you to try to absorb this, my friend. I mean, a smart person said, right now, I would vote for crazy over incompetent. And I'm like, wow. And that is where we're at as a country right now. And a lot of these individuals, not all, but there's enough to where we're in deep kimchi. If we have individuals talking like that, that are, are normally sensible. Do you think there is value in your contribution with this book in the committee's work, just in setting a historical marker around this event and creating a fact library for posterity, even if it's not changing enough hearts and minds in the moment. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what I wanted this book to show is that the data shows the committee's on the right track. And, but I also wanted a book that was before the committee and after the committee, because the committee ends, it's over. I mean, everybody's like, oh, there's a, if the report drops after the midterms, people might read it, but it's, it's OBE, right? Overcome by events. Um, so, you know, the thing is, you need to get out there with people who aren't going to read the report or not watch the committee hearings. And what I've tried to tell individuals is like the committee hearings, they've done a great job, right? Interleaving the stories of all these individuals, um, almost making it to a show themselves, right? Slick production, great videos. That's what they had to do. But the thing that we've lost is that how did it actually happen? The command and control elements, those individuals. And that right there, without proper resources, would take years. With proper resources, another year to a year and a half to break down all these links. And I don't know where the DOJ or FBI actually is, you know, in their investigative process with all these individuals, but it's so huge, buddy. You're talking about tens of millions of lines of data. So it's back to you, I guess, full circle, Ken, right? You talk about, you know, social media, but also all the links that we found. God, I bet it's not three to five, maybe 7% of, I think, what we actually need to look at. And, but it's enough. And that's what I want to tell people is that the sample of data we have from DOJ charge defendants, from you know people that have tried to organize this, the legal interviews that you had with the Rosens, right, and the Cipollonis, that's enough to show that that we really were living in an insane time with with Donald Trump, uh, especially near the end there. Um, but I think that um, as we go forward, 
if if we don't if we don't make this bigger than Trump because it is, we don't understand that this is metastasized. And we said, well, if Trump leaves, he doesn't have the same following. Well, maybe not all the way. But if we don't think this is baked in, these type of conspiracies in this deep state sort of, of uh, metaverse that they live in, uh, we're in trouble, man. We're in big trouble. And that's all I tried to do was a book that everybody would read. Yeah, there was some friction with the committee upon the publication of the book. Um, I'd like you to to speak to that just to clear the air or or get your side on the record. I, I'm i going to take you, your word that it was a coincidence that the book was published literally the day before the final hearing. Yeah, we had already shipped. And, you know, the thing is, we listen, when I did this hearing should have, you know, I thought the final report was September when we started this back in the day. Right. So, you know, near the end of the year, um, bit of a coincidence. I think the committee, um, overreacted a bit until they read the book and you saw they got very quiet, right? The book, you've read the book, Ken. It's not, there's no, I'm not a chatty Kathy. It's not a chatterbox kind of book or throwing spaghetti against the wall or any things that happen behind the scenes. That, that's all BS, right? What I wanted to show is that, you know, we have to move faster. Uh, there's sometimes going to be complicated decisions you have to make between analysis and politics or data and optics, but that's hardly a 10th of the book. If people read it, and I hope they do, the book is about how data can structure an investigation in a way that's much faster than we do today. And it's because I have 20 years of this. There's nobody in Congress who knows more about this than I do. It's just the way it is. I, I, the military and government trained me to do this. And I thought I could take all of that history since I was working this well before the committee. Right. I saw this long enough not to vote for Trump. Other people did. Right. I was against QAnon when it wasn't cool. Right. So for the Republicans and people actually thought I should be committed. But the data is what the data is. And the data belongs to the American people. These facts belong to the American people. That's what I've been trained to do. That's what I'm good at. And I'm to the point that, you know, I respect a lot of folks, but feelings, you know, I, I'm just not really it, don't care. Um, but I also uh, know that this book is dead on, square on what needs to be said about data in a way that's simplified. Can I recreate this in the future? I don't know. I don't think I'd ever do this again, man. Um, you know, I tried to do the right thing. Uh, but when the book had already been shipped to the stores and I saw the September 28th date, I said, oh, this is going to be a crap show, man. You know, <laughs> so, so uh, but, I, but I'm okay. I, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, but I'm very happy with the book. And, uh, and then when people read it, you know, you should see my DMs. Oh, Denver, this isn't what the press said. I said, yeah, some of the press wanted access. They didn't really want to look for truth or facts, and they didn't read the book. And they wanted to report what their masters told them to report at that time. And there's some, some press that's fantastic, and they waited to see what was up. And there's some who just wanted to make sure they continue to have access with the committee. And I know who they are, and they know who they are. So, uh, you know, the press has their own issues. But that's okay. You know, my book's out there, and if people like it, they can read it. And if people don't, don't. Well, I noticed right before the interview that it is now at number one in the nationalism category on Amazon. I didn't know there was a nationalism category on Amazon. I don't know if you did. Uh, that that raises its own flags, uh, but congratulations. Well, you know, it's weird. Uh, I never thought I'd be a New York Times bestselling author. You know, to, to make the top 10 is just amazing. You know, I think now I, I, I hope this book has a little bit of staying power. Listen, it's not about Trump. And I think that's what it was a little different from the other books that were bestsellers and and people who want to just talk about what Trump says. I, I just that's not how I'm wired. So I hope, Ken, that people read this book just for the data. And then when they read it, they're like, oh, wait a minute. He's sort of supporting the committee here. Oh, shit. You know, 
<laughs> so uh, that's really, I think, what's happening. And uh, data does support the committee's direction. And I just want people to know that. And I hope they read it and see that, you know, uh, there's some crazy people out there uh, that self-identified as crazy and they were running the government. I want to end with a final quote from the book and get your final thoughts. You wrote, there is a growing militant far-right Christian nationalist movement that is being fueled by online disinformation. That movement now constitutes an extremist wing of the Republican Party, the party that I once belonged to, and it poses a serious danger to our democracy. Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, Ken, I wouldn't have uh, written it if I didn't mean it. And I think if we continue down the road where disinformation is actually pushed by leaders, people, elected officials, and they use that to financially enhance their bottom line or to get more donations or fundraisings for higher office, or they're willing to belly crawl to Mar-a-Lago just to lick the boots of that individual there in order to get reelected, I think we're in deep danger. I think, I think the danger is, is that we start to lose what makes us Americans, which is a sort of a shared reality. That is not there right now. And I am telling people, 23 and 24, when you look at this in a predictive way, it is going to be absolutely insane. Uh, and just hang on, because if the Republicans take between 20 and 30 seats, I don't think it's long after that that Trump announces his candidacy. And there's nobody who can beat him for the nomination for the GOP. And if we see a long-term recession, or we see inflation continuing to rise, but we see other things happening in the foreign you know, geopolitical space that Americans don't like. I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say in 2024 that we have Trump as president again or a GOP candidate like him. So that's what scares me. And that's why I wrote what I wrote there. Well, thanks, Denver, for coming on. The book is The Breach. We'll put a link in the show notes. I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thank you so much, Ken. You take care and thank you for having me, sir. Thanks again to Denver for joining me. Make sure to check out his new book, The Breach. The link is in the show description. To learn more about Denver, visit denverleerigelman.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Rep Riggleman and on Instagram at Denver Riggleman. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.